This morning we pick off exactly where we left off last week in our study of 1 Corinthians as we go verse by verse, but specifically looking at the power and the reality of the resurrection. We saw last week that one small misconception can lead you to a life that is horrendous, a life that is doomed, much like in Yokoi's cave, a man lived for 30 years thinking World War II was still going on, afraid to surrender, afraid to be caught, and yet he could have been living a life of freedom, a life in Japan where he could have been enjoying hot food and a warm bed. And in the same way, one small misconception that we have seen with the Corinthians ruins their lives in a way that they may not even be aware of, which is why Paul connects it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. Follow along as I read. Paul writes, Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage, we are reminded of Your greatness. We are reminded of the beauty and the power and the reality of the resurrection. And I pray, Father, as we continue and finish this passage, that You will give us a greater sense of awe and worship as we look at the reality of whom we serve, whom we worship, the reality of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finished half of this passage last week. We started with verse 12, which gives us the foundation for what Paul addresses regarding the wrong thinking about bodily resurrection among some of the Corinthians. See, it wasn't that they were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were denying the future resurrection of all believers. And Paul is saying, if you're going to deny that, then you have to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We understand that the Corinthians are believers. He has addressed them as believers. He has called them brethren, which means they believe and have faith in the resurrection of Christ. What they don't understand is one resurrection leads to another. And if the promises of Scripture that Jesus was raised from the dead are true, then the promises of Scripture that we will be raised from the dead one day must also be true. The two are so intimately and spiritually connected that Paul says, how in the world can you believe this? Paul is astounded that they can believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ but not the resurrection of believers. Then we moved on to verse 13, and by way of review, we were looking at eight rational repercussions of a rejected resurrection. These are all hypothetical because, praise God, Jesus is risen from the dead. But they're rational, they're logical. 
the Bible is clear about these truths that if Jesus was not resurrected, the following would be true. And again, this is our review from last week. We first saw the first rational repercussion of a rejected resurrection is quite simply Jesus is dead. Not died and raised, but still dead. In verse 13 he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. This first point forms the foundation, the basis of all the other seven points. Because Jesus' death was confirmed on the cross, His death on the cross was confirmed by His burial, the burial of a dead corpse, a bag of flesh that was no longer breathing, heart was not beating. The resurrection was necessary for Him to be alive. We saw all of this back in verses 3 and 4. So if what the Corinthians believe about the believer's resurrection is true, then Christ was not raised, which means He is still dead. Long ago, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, maybe some bones remaining. See, Christ is the one who makes all future resurrections possible. So if we are not resurrected, then it is only because He was not resurrected. And if He is not resurrected, then you've removed one of the key pillars of the Christian faith, one of the key components of the gospel message. Jesus would be dead. Secondly, we saw that preaching is baseless in the first part of verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. The word vain means more than how we typically use it in society today, usually referring to someone who's cocky, specifically about their looks. But vain actually means empty, void, without basis, fruitless. And the reason the apostles' preaching would be vain is because they were preaching new life in Christ. That's what we are living. That's why we're here, because we have a new life in Christ. But that new life is instituted by a risen Savior. But if he is not resurrected, then what they have been preaching has no real basis. And in fact, the Corinthians and all believers have no new life. They are calling others to trust in a risen Savior who, if the Corinthians are right, isn't really risen. And that led us to our third point, faith is worthless. He said, not only our preaching, but in the end of verse 14, your faith also is vain Empty, fruitless, baseless. Again, this is logical. If the preaching has no substance, then neither does the faith placed in the message of that preaching. Both are empty and worthless. Everything that was based on faith in Christ was a sham. From Sunday services to personal prayer to repentance and obedience. All a lie worthless. Maybe it made you feel good. Maybe it made you a better person, gained some respect by these other foolish, deceived Christians, but really there's nothing there. It's no different than someone worshiping Buddha or any other dead individual, not to mention idols that were never alive in the first place. Worshiping someone, something that no longer exists. Faith would be worthless. Last Last week, number four, we saw preachers are liars. He says in verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, 
This would refer to all preachers, but specifically in that context, of course, speaking of Paul and the other apostles. Not only is preaching baseless and vain, having no eternal impact or even, frankly, temporal impact in this life, Paul goes a step further and says it's a lie because they have claimed something happened that didn't actually happen. Son, did you take out the trash? Yes, I did. Trash is right there at my feet. It's a lie. Even lies that seem to make the individual look good, because in our understanding of the gospel, the resurrection would make God look good and powerful, but it's still a lie. Oh yeah, that guy, oh, he scored 10 goals today. He was great. Your son was great, just trying to make me feel good about my son, but you're lying. I see what you're trying to do, but it's a lie. It's still a lie. And what's more, when we're talking about the gospel, the apostles, the apostles of Jesus Christ have actually misrepresented God in the name of God, and here's the worst part, while claiming to speak the word of God. And so they have lied. We get to our fifth point, which is our first for this morning. That was our review. Now our fifth rational repercussion of a rejected resurrection. God is slandered. God is slandered. He goes on and explains why it would be lying in verse 15. And he says, Because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So again, not only are preachers and the apostles, specifically in this context, liars, but their lie is one that is especially heinous because it is directed against God. Paul says not only are they false witnesses, but they have testified against God. That's pretty powerful. It's not just, well, we've, we've said something wrong about God. We made a mistake. Not even we testified wrongly about God. The terminology is very specific and very important. We have testified against God. Oh, the resurrection is great, but if it's a lie, they have actually attacked God's honor and integrity by claiming He did something that He did not do. Again, on the surface, this may seem like a good thing. Because what they are claiming is miraculous and powerful. Like saying your friend took in a homeless man when in reality all they did was give him a dollar or buy him a meal. The bottom line is a lie, is a lie, is a lie. And at the same time, the reason Paul says this is worse is because you are taking God's plan of salvation and saying that He did something that you need to believe for salvation when in fact that's all just a fairy tale. To tell people in order to have a right relationship with God, you need to believe in the resurrection, but the resurrection didn't even happen? Never happened, if the Corinthians are right. It's like saying, Jesus died for your sin. Jesus died for your sins. And Jesus walks by. That guy? Don't you remember? Pilate let him free. He was never crucified. So who paid for my sins? None of it makes sense. It all falls apart. 
you're slandering God by adding to His message. This isn't a case of making someone look good. This is slander. This is a false accusation. This is an attack. And if the apostles are willing to go that far, what else is a lie? We can't trust them. We can't believe anything they've said or written. The early church and down through the ages all the way to our church here in 2022 is based on nothing. A fabrication. You turn this around and you see that since the resurrection of Christ is historical fact and the Corinthians are believing something that actually goes against the true witness of the apostles. The witness being that Jesus is alive. But why stop there? If the apostles are liars, then so are the eyewitnesses. So is the entirety of the Old Testament that prophesied the resurrection. And so is Jesus Himself. Well, what about, someone would chime in, Jesus never said He would be raised. Maybe in the Gospels, the Gospel writers just wrote that. That was part of the lie. Jesus never said that. It was just made up by the disciples and written down in our Bibles for us. Well, says another, if that's not true, then did He say that He would come again in glory to return in the great second coming? Or was that a lie too? Because He can't come again in the future if He wasn't raised. Well, if you're not raised, then is there an end times? Is this spiral of depravity as the world gets worse and worse really not going to come to an end? If he's dead and not raised, how will he come again to destroy his enemies? To bind Satan in hell for eternity? The answer, he can't. So now we're not just taking sections of Scripture and throwing them out. You can toss all of Revelation in the trash. Pretty soon you have this unending trail of lies that leads to nothing but empty faith and a dead God. As I mentioned last week, this is all one big connected series of threads that make up a net. And when that net is suspended on a playground for children to play on, you cannot climb on one section without affecting every other section. No matter how far on one end you are, you will move the other end. And no matter what part of Scripture you disagree with and you want to add to or take away, it will affect the rest. We see liberals doing this. We see atheists doing this. They know they can attack the validity of the resurrection of Christ by attacking what the Bible says on homosexuality or what the Bible says about men's roles because it's all interconnected. We get that. The enemies of the gospel get that very clearly. No matter how many degrees of separation are between two ideas, doctrines, theologies, facts in the Scriptures, 
You cannot move one without affecting the other. This is a great reminder for us, a warning. On the flip side of the coin that we talked about last week, not only are we to be wary of removing parts of the gospel that we think may be unsavory to the unbelieving ear or the young Christian, we must also be cautious of adding to the gospel even when well-intentioned. Even if your desire is to make the name of God look good or the gospel more palatable to a weak believer or an unbeliever, we do that, don't we? We get questions when sharing the gospel and we go, well, you know, and we kind of soften it a little bit. That's taken away. Oh, yeah, well, you know, I think God will be forgiving of that. We're adding if we're talking about the sins of an unbeliever without repentance. We are talking about God. Not your shy daughter. Not a coworker, Not a boss who ran into your office and said, we're a lot, in a lot of trouble with the SEC. You need a cover for me. We are talking about God. I get it. You may want to add to the Scriptures. You may want to help someone. But God does not need that. God definitely doesn't want that. Do not add to the Scriptures. Do not take away. The beauty of all of this is that His Word is clear. It outdates any other God and worship of God. He was the Creator. It outdates any other religious teaching. Testified throughout the ages, scattered around the globe, one unified belief that in the absence of modern technology could only be explained by the revelation of God Himself. This is not one man who came up with some idea, disseminated it through media and television with a limited number of followers in localized regions. This is a global phenomenon that can be explained only by a living and risen God. This isn't an Asian religion. This isn't a New Age religion. This isn't a religion that is limited to one generation or one culture or one country or one group of people. God is everywhere. The Old and the New Testaments testify to this. And the reality is that Jesus is Lord and the Lord is risen. So in preaching the gospel, God is not slandered. He is glorified. But we are reminded again of the travesty that would exist if the resurrection never happened despite the preaching of the apostles. All of this is a wake-up call for us. We get so comfortable with the gospel and the resurrection that I believe looking at these hypotheticals helps us to understand and appreciate what we have. Is there a saying like that? You don't truly appreciate what you have until it is taken away. Praise God, this can never be taken away. The speaking of travesties, our next point is frankly bone-chilling. Look at verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. 
we are so comfortable with the fact that we are no longer enslaved to sin that I think we have forgotten the theological reality of that. We lose sight of who we once were and where we were destined to be for eternity. Without the resurrection, we would still be in our sins. Repercussion number six, sin is still master. Sin would be your Lord, not Jesus. In verse 16... Paul reiterates the theme, the central issue he is addressing. You can't have the resurrection with with Christ without the resurrection of the dead. Simply a repetition of what we saw in verse 13. Nothing else needs to be said about this. The key point for us is found in verse 17. We have talked talked rather about the vanity of our faith if Jesus was not raised. The specific point that Paul makes here is, is that we would still be enslaved to sin. We would still be in our sins. Why? Yes, Jesus died for our sins, verse 3, a sin nature to which we were once enslaved. But there is no efficacy in that death if Jesus remained dead. It would be no different than anyone who's ever existed said, hey, I committed some crimes, I'm going to the chair, I'm dying for you. No, he's dying for his crimes. doesn't do anything for anyone else. But Jesus is risen. And so we understand that his death and his claim to die for our sins was actually true and efficacious. But Why? Why would we still be in our sins if Jesus was not raised even though He died and according to His own lips died for our sins? First, because if He did not rise from the grave, then there was no victory over that sin. That's very important when you understand the theology of the resurrection. It shows victory over sin. It would prove that He is not God and thus could not truly take away our sins. Second, death to sin is only one part of the equation. That's only one part of the gospel, one part of the Christian life. The second one is newness of life, which is in association with the resurrection. That's why the symbolism... In baptism, of someone going into the water and then coming back out in newness of life. That's why when we take communion, we read the whole passage and we don't just talk about what he ate and drank and said, but he also said, I will not do this again with you until we are in the kingdom. That's a paraphrase, very loose paraphrase. Because communion is not just looking back that He died, but looking forward to the promise. There is no promise without the resurrection. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 11. And in this sixth chapter of Romans, verses 4 through 11, we will see in more detail, what this means, the newness of life, 
the significance of the resurrection and not just His death. Romans 6, starting in verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. You see that? The connection between walking in newness of life and being united in the likeness of His resurrection. Verse 6, Knowing this, that our old self, our sinful self, was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also, here it is, live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer is master over him. Verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Praise God, we don't stop there, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not possible if he was not raised. Turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. You understand the concept of justification by faith. The basic idea being declared right or righteous in the eyes of God. If you're a believer here this morning, that happened at the moment of salvation. It is instantaneous. It is a one-time event, not a process like sanctification. It is key to our understanding of salvation. You must be justified. That is part of salvation. That is salvation. And Romans 4.25 says, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. In the Greek, you could easily say, and was raised for our justification. Justification is connected to resurrection. What's more, keep your finger in Romans, in our ongoing guilt before God because of our post-conversion sin, we are no longer enslaved to sin, which means we don't uh, live in sin. We aren't living in a life where it is impossible to glorify God, where we have to sin. We have no choice but to sin. There's no guilt in terms of the feeling over sin. It is the way of the world. It is the way you get ahead, and getting ahead is good. All of those things, you understand that, the enslavement to sin. But after salvation, we are no longer enslaved to sin, but we do still sin. We are freed from the mastery of sin, but we still do sin. And until, frankly, believers, you admit that you enjoy your sin, you're not going to be very, you're not going to make much progress in your battle against sin. We enjoy the sin. That's why we do it. That's why we pursue it. That's why we brag about it. But in this sin, we still have that not eternal but objective guilt before God. We have done something wrong before God. So what happens with those sins? If his death and resurrection are connected and united with the old man, the old self, what about now? 
Well, Romans 8, 33 and 34 gives us the answer to that. Jesus' resurrection allows Him to be at the right hand of God. And what is He doing there? Well, one of the things we know He's doing is interceding for us. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Those are believers. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We have an advocate in heaven. Contrary to what some people would like to tell you, God's wrath did not disappear from His being and character sometime when the Old Testament times ended. God is still a God of wrath. God is still a God of judgment. It's not just in the Old Testament that we read of God's wrath and the horrifying things that He did to women and children and men and pregnant women. But we read that He is coming again one day to do the same with a robe dipped in blood, the blood of His enemies. And every time we sin, it deserves that wrath. And Jesus, who was raised from the dead, sits at the right hand of the throne of God the Father and says, yes, yes, when he got angry at his wife, he deserves your wrath. Yes, when he laid on that horn in anger, he deserves your wrath. Yes, when he did a double take at that girl walking by in the short skirt, he deserves your wrath. But here are my scars. And here I am. Because, Father, I took your wrath for them. Could not happen if he was not raised from the dead. That throne that he rightfully was in from eternity past would be empty. And this is why Paul uses the word worthless to describe our faith in this hypothetical scenario. It's a stronger word than vain. It means useless and empty. The emphasis here is aimlessness or leading to no object or end. Sin would be your master. It's all worthless. There is no end. There is no goal. There is no forgiveness. There is no freedom from sin. In other words, without the truth of the resurrection, our faith would get us nothing except a surprise ending at the end of our lives when we are declared guilty and condemned and sent to hell. Even in our faith in Christ. No forgiveness, no pardon for sins, no atoning work, no eternal life. Imagine, I hope hopefully all of you would need to imagine this. This has never happened to anyone. Imagine being so in debt to a loan shark 
that there's a bounty on your head. You're as good as dead. If you're seen anywhere in public, someone's going to come, kill you, break your legs, whatever. You lose your job because you're afraid to call in. You're afraid to show up. You can't see your family. You're living like a vagabond and hiding in some hole somewhere. Then someone gives you a call on your burner phone. It's your friend. He said, I paid off your debt. I found the guy. I paid with interest. You're free. Come back. See your wife. Hug your kids. For the first time in months, you feel like the sun on your face. You feel the sun on your face. You're breathing fresh air. You're running somewhere where you can eat something that's not cold and out of a can. Not one minute passes before you're cracked over the head with a pipe and thrown into a van. Leading to your death. I thought my debt was paid. Nope. He paid all right but the bills were counterfeit. And now he's nowhere to be found. You're still liable. There's no way you can pay. You're dead. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. If Christ's resurrection was in fact counterfeit, then you're dead of sin, not to a loan shark, but someone much worse if you face his wrath. A God of anger, a God of wrath, the creator of the universe. The resurrection was counterfeit. You are still in the crosshairs of God's anger and wrath. Which is, in some ways, I believe, would be worse than the unbeliever because all hope is lost living a time thinking I'm free and I'm in God's good graces only to find out that you are still in the crosshairs of His anger and wrath, which means in reality our debt was paid and we're in His crosshairs all right, but now in the crosshairs of God's grace and blessing and wonderful promises. And if you think this hypothetical alternative is shocking, imagine what it means for those who in Christ have already died. And that brings us to our seventh rational repercussion of a rejected resurrection. Dead Christians are suffering. Verse 18 then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This is scary stuff because we're thinking, man, how bad is it for us if Christ wasn't resurrected? Well, what about the people who already died? Without the resurrection, those who have died in Christ are in hell. Fallen asleep, as you know, is a euphemism for physical death. The dead and living, for that matter, in Christ are no different than unbelievers. Those who die trusting in Christ are suffering eternally. Christ was not raised for their justification, and they have no advocate at the throne of God where they thought they were entering glory and paradise. They are now burning forever. So not only 
Are the Christian family members who raised you and led you to Christ now enduring unending condemnation? But so is John Calvin, Martin Luther, the Apostle Paul, Peter, Moses, Mary, all the Marys, all in hell. Pick your favorite Christian biography. Spurgeon's in hell. Sprawl's in hell. Every missionary who gave their lives as martyrs for Christ are burning in hell. But we know that heaven is real. And Christians get to go there because Christ was raised. So all those individuals I just mentioned, they're there right now. Worshiping God. And because physical resurrection is also true, we will meet them one day in physical resurrected state. To shake their hand, to hug them, to hold them, to thank them for the sacrifices they made as we all, for eternity, on the new earth, worship together because Christ indeed was raised. And we've come to our last rational repercussion. We've seen this morning God is slandered, sin is master, dead Christians are suffering. Number eight, and friends, this is an understatement, would be, if Christ wasn't raised, the understatement of the millennium, believers are pathetic. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Even in hoping in Christ, which would be limited to this life if he was not raised, then we are to be pitied. We use the word pathetic uh, in a negative connotation in our world, in our society, but it really means to feel sorry for someone, pity them, not arrogantly, but truly sympathetically. That would be us because we've been duped. We've been deceived. We put our faith in an illusion up to our physical deaths. This is a great reminder that Christianity is not just about this life. In fact, it's fractionally about this life. This life is merely a drop in the bucket compared to the reality of what we have in Christ, which is never-ending. Which, to be honest, you wouldn't understand that by looking at Christians these days. We live all out for today rather than the future, despite what the Scriptures tell us to do. For the unbeliever, that drop in the bucket is crucial for that eternity because it is only in this life that they have the opportunity to come to Christ. Once they're dead, there's no second chances. But more to the point, if Christ is not risen, then there's no hope for the future for anyone. Think about all that we have put our trust in, everything we have given up for the sake of eternity, for the sake of Christ. We have given up the pursuit of wealth and riches in this life for eternal reward. 
we have suffered shame or are willing to suffer shame for His name's sake, all for naught. Martyrs who died for the glory of their Savior to be with Him in that moment as their bodies are burnt to death because they would not deny the name of Jesus Christ, not really saved. We have given up the pleasures of the world, sinful pleasures, for the sake of eternal joy and the joy of obedience, only to realize that we have given up both. The expectation of His return in which all wrongs will be made right is nothing but a dream because the dead don't come back. We are sinners. We want to do those things. We want to spend less time with family so we can have fun and relax and have me time. We want to keep all our money and not give to the poor, give to the church, give to missionaries so we can have more stuff for ourselves to enjoy. But we don't do those things even though we want to. Why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. We want to say stay silent about the gospel, but we don't because of Christ. And when that individual mocks us, we say even more even though we want to run away. Why? Because of Christ. And if Christ is dead, we are pathetic. We have suffered. We have spoken up. We have donated. We have sacrificed. For what? Pathetic. Sad. And he says, not just we are to be pitied, we are most to be pitied, to be exact. I would argue that he is saying most means most. Even more than those following false religions. Because, frankly, if Christ was not raised, we're following a false religion too. But at least other religions know their leader is dead. Other religions at least say, I don't know, when talking about eternity, if I'm good enough. Other religions at least admit and know it's based on their own effort. So they're putting all their faith in themselves rather than someone else. So you see why I'm saying that if there's no resurrection, we would be most to be pitted even over the members of cults. Because at least they can still do what they're doing and believe what they believe without Christ or resurrection. We cannot. And again, all those hypotheticals highlight the wonder of true Christian faith. Because men will be raised from the dead because we know that Christ was raised from the dead. And because Christ rose from the dead, we know our hope in Him is for eternity's sake and not just this life. If it was for this life, it'd be pathetic because everything we're doing is for the next life. Every sacrifice you're making is for the next life. Every cent you give is for the next life. 
All that we do and have done for the cause of Christ is worthy, will be rewarded, and will indeed prove to be but a drop in the bucket compared to our eternal reward and the time we have with Him forever. So think through these rational repercussions of a rejected resurrection and what that would mean for you on a daily basis. If Jesus is dead, if all preaching, especially that within the Scriptures, is baseless, if faith is worthless, if preachers are liars, if God is slandered, if sin is your master, if dead Christians are in hell, and you and I and all in the church are pathetic. But friends, the resurrection is real. His and ours. We cannot take the real and redemptive payment for our sins lightly. Our sins have been atoned for. Our souls are liberated from sin. And we are justified in the sight of God. And although Paul is addressing a misconception in the minds of just some of the Corinthians, the lesson and wake-up call for us is clear. Because sometimes we need to be reminded of what life would be like if we didn't have what we have graciously been given. So let us praise God for the resurrection. Praise God. He is alive. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You not only for Your amazing plan of salvation and the Gospel, but Your power and ability to bring it to pass. And thank You through the Scriptures You have brought it to light. And in our lives, by Your grace, You have brought it into reality. Father, help us to live in light of the resurrection. Help us to appreciate what we have. Something that we speak of so often and we come in a few weeks to celebrate a special day on Resurrection Sunday of the resurrection, but may it not be limited to a day, a special worship service, a particular sermon series, but may we appreciate and live out this reality every single day. Thank You in Your infinite wisdom to bring us this passage that we could see and think about the horrors and terrors of what our lives would be like without the resurrection. And we praise You, Father, 
that you raised your son for our justification and that one day in physical form, because we are resurrected, we will be with you. Help us to live in light of eternity and not for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand as we...